Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Megan Gibson, Executive Editor of Foreign in London. It's Monday, the 28th of February. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. This week, our guest is Mark Galliotti, who is not only an expert in Russian security, he's also an honorary professor at the School of Slavonic and East European Studies, University College London, and the author of the books, The Weaponization of Everything, and We Need to Talk About Putin, How the West Gets Him Wrong. As Russia's invasion of Ukraine enters its fifth day, he's here to discuss the latest in the conflict, what miscalculations Vladimir Putin has made so far, and why so many experts fail to predict this. Mark, thank you very much for joining me. Oh, thanks for the invitation. This has been a very fast-moving conflict. We're recording this Monday morning, following what was an eventful few days over the weekend. As of this moment, the Ukrainian military and its various volunteer battalions seem to be holding firm. Yesterday, we saw the escalation, well, seeming escalation from Putin when he announced that he was putting Russia's nuclear force on high alert. Is that an indication that... Putin doesn't believe the conflict is going well for Russia, or is he feeling concerned or cornered by sanctions? Or is this more of a escalate to de-escalate type of strategy? Okay, well, I'm actually going to just step first of all on that particular escalate to de-escalate phrase, because it's a common misunderstanding of Russian nuclear doctrine that says they have that as part of their doctrine, that in a way they would launch a war, get to a good point, and then send a, a nuclear missile in some direction to basically say, okay, now we want to freeze our gains. That's not one of the sort of Russian nuclear strategies. And I think it's worth mentioning that given that there is obviously talk about what the Russians may do with their nukes. But more broadly, yes, I mean, I think this is clearly the case that Putin you know, had very different expectations for how things would go. I think the idea was, I mean, again, insofar as one can trust the the rumours that are circulating, was the expectation that within two days, Kiev would have been taken. And the whole operation was meant to only last two weeks, which presumably means by the end of two weeks, basically the war had been won. Mm. Well, obviously, it's still early days, but uh, clearly Kiev has not fallen. 
the Zelensky regime is still in place, despite the fact that it is, as we are constantly being told now by Russian propagandists, uh, an American puppet neo-Nazi one, and yet one that for some strange reason Ukrainians actually seem willing to fight for. There clearly was a degree of self-delusion. Putin presumed, that I imagine, that the Ukrainian state was going to quickly fall and that the Ukrainian military would either, as let's be perfectly honest, it happened in Crimea, either defect in large numbers or else just simply not fight. None of that has happened. It's an interesting insight into how Ukrainian society is much more bottom up in terms of its the way it organizes itself and mobilizes that you have had this huge public wellspring of enthusiasm to resist, as well as the, obviously, passion of the fighters of, of, of the, the regular military. And in that situation, I mean, I can't help but feel in, in many ways Putin is all in. I mean, he has to at least achieve some kind of victory. And that's why we're seeing not only more forces being thrown into the battlefield, as well as probably a change in their sort of terms of reference. Usually when the Russian army goes in, you know, it basically moves behind what could almost be characterized as a, a rolling bombardment ahead of it, you know, massive and indiscriminate use of artillery and rocket fire. They have been relatively restrained this time around, presumably because they understood the political costs at home, abroad and in Ukraine of huge civilian casualties. Unfortunately, Putin might be tempted to take away that particular political restriction. And lastly, we, we've had this particular um, nuclear announcement that, again, I think it's really important to stress. There are four levels of nuclear preparedness in the sort of the Russian escalatory chain. All this has done has moved Russia from the bottom one to the next to bottom one. So it's not actually as if there is a, an imminent threat of, of missiles being launched. It's more, I think, precisely that just as things like the swift disconnection has been described as, as an economic nuclear weapon. Well, since Putin is obviously feeling the impact of that, I think he's wanting to note that he actually has the real ones too, in the hope that this acts in some kind of deterrent force. Briefly, before we unpack all of that, including the effect sanctions have already had within Russia, I wanted to quickly ask you, why do you think so many Russia experts and analysts who didn't actually believe that Putin was going to launch a full-scale attack, why do you think they got this wrong? What were they missing about the picture of the case we are in right now? Well, we did see quite a sharp division between the sort of military-oriented analysts who were much, much more bullish, hawkish, insert animal of choice, and definitely did think that there was going to be a full-scale war. And those who basically follow the political scene, like myself, who either thought it was inconceivable or, I mean, my usual estimate was it was 30 to 40%. I definitely thought the balance of probabilities was against. And I think it, it comes down to, to several things. I mean, one is, again, I think the, the military analysts, they tend to assume that capability equals intent that you're not going to build up this kind of a force unless you're planning on using it. Which, for the record, I still think is a flawed assumption. Because back in spring of last year, one of the reasons why people were saying, oh, the military buildup then is not serious, was precisely because it didn't have all the components in place for a proper military offensive. It was all teeth. There wasn't the logistical backup and so forth. And quite frankly, if this had all been intended as an exquisite bluff, 
and there were smart people operating in the Kremlin, and one has to assume that there are smart people operating in the Kremlin, then presumably they would think, well, okay, if those are the ingredients we needed to add to make our bluff plausible, then this time we'll add them. So yes, they were right. But I think that there is an issue with that particular calculation. For those of us on, on the political analysis side, I think there were two things. One is just clearly that we were making certain assumptions about common sense that failed to represent the rationality, if I can use that word, of the Kremlin, or particularly of Putin. I think, again, I think you know, the extent to which this is a one-man decision, I think, became starkly obvious at the now infamous Monday Security Council meeting that was televised, in which each of the powerful boyars of the system was essentially forced to just simply rubber stamp Putin's decision on pain of being bullied and humiliated. But also, it's because pretty much everyone we spoke to in Russia was convinced that there wasn't going to be a war. This is one of the interesting things that it is clear that although people within certain people within the security apparatus had an idea of what was coming, this was not in any way communicated through to Putin's machine. And most Russian officials basically learned about it at the same time as the rest of us, which is one reason why the propaganda has been so clumsy. There wasn't any kind of serious buildup to try and prepare Russians for, for this war, you know, all these sorts of things. Therefore, I think it was a, a genuine and general failure to appreciate that in some ways what we have now is a new Putin. And I think this is the problem. These paradigm shifts, we can only really be certain about them after they happen. In some ways, we saw that in 2014 with the annexation of Crimea, a Putin who was willing to go beyond limits that he himself had in effect set for himself previously. Now, likewise, we now know that we are definitely dealing with a different Putin. But in some ways, we had relatively little opportunity to really get a sense of him through the COVID years, which I think will, in hindsight, prove to have been significant in terms of closing down his circle yet further, leaving him brooding on the alleged mistreatment of Russia and such like. So I think that that's the key thing, that basically, politically speaking, this does not make sense. And this is indeed, I would say, the start of the end of Putinism. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, if you actually are just simply looking at the facts on the ground militarily, again, clearly this looks like a real preparation for a real war. You mentioned rationality and a new Putin. Not, not to sound glib, but has Putin gone mad? Has he lost complete touch with reality? <laughs> I mean, look, in some ways, on, on a purely emotional level, I want to say yes, absolutely. I mean, these are, this is a barking mad decision. But on the other hand, I, I push against this notion that we just simply say, oh, he's mad. Because I think in some ways it's too easy and it lets us off the hook. It means, well, he's mad. How can we possibly be expected to predict, understand, and follow the, the thoughts of, of someone who is insane. I mean, I think that, I mean, he clearly has some, some deeply disturbing and also just thoroughly wrong ideas about Russia, about Ukraine, absolutely, and about how the world works. I think there is still essentially a pragmatic and rational human being there who is making decisions based on very, very inaccurate understandings of the world. And I think this is, this is one of the, of the things that we have to appreciate, the extent to which actually sensible people, even slightly unhinged sensible people, can still make very bad decisions if the information they're getting is limited, partial, or downright wrong. And I think, again, for me, this is one of the scariest things about this whole process, how it really underlined the extent to which Putin, insofar as he gets information from a small group of exceedingly hawkish individuals, and a slightly larger group of essentially timorous cronies 
who do not dare tell him things that go against his assumptions and understandings. Um, I mean, again, to go back to that Security Council meeting, because again, I think in so many ways it epitomizes the processes going on. You had his own, worth mentioning, Ukrainian-born emissary to the peace talks, the Normandy form at peace talks, who after you know, giving a, a general briefing and yes, on prompting backing Putin's plans, but then wanted to weigh in. He wanted to speak more, more broadly. And, and this is the one guy who has been taking point on the whole issue. And Putin cut him off. He tried again. Kudos to him. Putin cut him off a second time, much more kind of clearly and definitely. This is it. Putin is not interested in actually getting briefings. He's interested in getting accolades, and he's interested in just simply getting reinforcement for what he believes to be right. So I think that's unfortunately the dangerous situation we're in. Is there any evidence at the moment of what Russia's political goals in Ukraine will be if it wins militarily? Well, I mean, it's interesting that the formal goals are, as Putin put it, demilitarization and denazification. Well, I mean, unpicking what those mean, I mean, demilitarization is presumably, at the very least, enforced neutrality with minimal Ukrainian sort of military capabilities. And obviously, that means no NATO membership and the like. And as for denazification, I mean, apart from just simply being a particularly obscene attempt to sort of riff off the great patriotic war, World War II vibe, and particularly in the context of dealing with a country with a Jewish precedent, but it also implies that we're talking about a fairly comprehensive purge of figures within the Ukrainian government leadership and civil society whom the Russians think will be problems. Again, this is some slightly overheated talk about death lists and such like. Maybe I'm so over-optimistic. I'm not convinced that we're talking quite that level, but I'm, I'm sure arrests, removal from office and, and, and such like, which of course you can only do if you have absolute control over the country. So the corollary of that is that the intention is to impose some kind of puppet quizzling regime in Kiev and to maintain whatever forces would be necessary to actually ensure that it's in place. Well, that, that might have been the original goal. I mean, it's clear, though, that it's, it's not happening at all at the moment. But it's also clear that there may well have been a sort of a phase two notion. It's quite interesting. There was an article that was clearly written to be ready to be run by uh, Ria Novosti News Agency after this sort of, you know, glorious quick victory, because it kind of was, was written as if in the past tense it was talking about a victory, which Rianovosti accidentally, it seems, published. Now, they very quickly took it down, but such is the nature of the internet, that things are available on the Wayback Machine and such like. And also, of all places, it ended up also run in translation in an English-language Pakistani newspaper. And in it, this pundit, who was clearly sort of in the thoroughly nationalist and loyalist camp, presented this as just the first stage in the natural reunification of the Slavic people, Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia, back into some kind of common unit. Now, again, we don't know how far Putin himself had subscribed quite to that kind of imperialist strategy. But it is clear that this is the, the, the sort of people to whom Putin is speaking these days, that is how they are envisaging it. So incredibly grand and dramatic political ambitions, even if at the moment they're really not getting anywhere. Touching on that, the fallout or the reaction, I guess you could say, of what's happened so far surely has not gone to, to, to plan 
from Putin's perspective. What is the potential for real destabilization within Russia over this? I mean, we've seen protests and just today we've seen that the ruble has plunged 30% overnight. You mentioned before you think we are seeing the beginning of the end of Putinism. Could this lead to a serious challenge then of Putin's rule? Yeah, I mean, this is the interesting thing. I mean, as you say, first of all, it was a clear series of miscalculations. Putin managed to totally miscalculate once again Ukraine and the degree to which this really is a sort of extraordinarily coming together of the nation. I mean, this will be, this is is the true nation building moment for Ukraine, something that they haven't really managed to do since 1991. So in that respect, Putin can, if he's thinking about his historical legacy, his historical legacy can be as the father of the Ukrainian nation. Likewise, the West has demonstrated much greater unity than, to be perfectly honest, I think all of us expected. And it's, this is the interesting thing with politics. It often kind of reaches a certain kind of critical mass stage where it all becomes self-sustaining. And it's almost like countries are actually competing to demonstrate that they are that much more tough and effective um, on, on Russia. So you know, clearly the, the suite of measures... I mean, although we had been told in advance that Russia would face an unprecedented and devastating sanctions, what I'm getting from people in London and Washington is that actually the current package is much more substantial than they had dreamed would be politically possible. And so, you know, again, clearly it has acquired its own momentum and it will have a serious impact. Look, I'm, I'm not an economist. And to be honest, I don't think any economist really knows what's going to happen to the Russian economy, because this is the first time we have seen this scale of economic warfare being waged in the modern interconnected world against a country that is so deeply meshed in that world. You know, this is not Iran. This is certainly not North Korea. Um, this is a country which has, you know, for, for so long, it, its banking system, its information systems, its, you know, position within global supply chains has become just so integral. So this is is potentially going to be a big issue. It's not going to, I think, bring the whole country's economy collapsing down into ruins. One can overplay the impact, for example, of the admittedly massive financial reserves that the Russians have built up, something like half a trillion pounds worth. Obviously, a certain amount of that is frozen, a certain amount of that is unusable, but nonetheless, it doesn't just simply disappear. But still, I mean, I think that this this is clearly going to have severe impacts on people up and down the system, you know, from oligarchs to, you know, impoverished workers in provincial cities, you name it. And the question is, well, what does that do? Now, as we saw with the Soviet Union, a state with an economy in stagnation nudging towards freefall can still survive so long as the leadership controls the security forces, to be perfectly honest. The sad truth of the matter is that people power is great, but people power does not beat firepower. The point is at which point people power actually undermines the unity, the loyalty of of the actual security apparatus. And it's quite interesting that although, again, at the moment, for example, the Kremlin is saying there's very, very few casualties, we're beginning to see actually news of casualties bubbling up in the regional press, which is under less sort of tight control. And, you know, for example, the, the head of a, a Sobor, which is a kind of uh, police rapid response unit as part of the National Guard from Kemirova, has been identified as, as one who has been killed. And I think that's interesting because the National Guard is, after all, the ultimate Praetorian Guard force. 
It's the guys who, you know, are the Amon riot police that are, as we speak, clearing away protesters and dragging them off with a sort of little kicking on the way because they dare to protest against the war. These are also the people who are now being sent into the meat grinder that is Ukraine. And remember, if we are to believe, and, you know, we have to be always cautious, but if we're to believe the Ukrainian defense ministry figures for casualties, that the Russians, as of yesterday, had suffered 4,300, that means that in four days of war, the Russians have suffered as many casualties as the Soviet Union did in three and a half years of war in Afghanistan, the first three and a half years of war in Afghanistan. So, you know, again, it gives that kind of context. So we might begin to see splits within the security apparatus. So I think for the moment, we're going to see the brave protesters out on the streets. We're going to see a lot of people just hunkering down in a sort of survival mode as they think, well, okay, you know, how are we going to cope in the current economic environment? And so long as the fundamentals of the system continue to work, so long as there is at least enough food in the shops, so long as the transport system can work, so long as people are getting paid their salaries and their pensions and actually can access ATMs in due course, then I think we still have quite a while for the sort of, it's, it's going to be about a slow grind down of the system as it loses legitimacy. But on the other hand, if any of those fundamental things become seriously uh, impacted by the sanctions, then things could change really very quickly and very unpredictably. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's €1 a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman World Review comes France Elects, a special podcast series exploring the main candidates and the big issues shaping the campaign to be France's next president. I'm Ido Vok, and over the next two months, I'll be joined by special guests to dissect incumbent Emmanuel Macron's record, his rivals to the right and left, and key issues such as foreign policy and the climate. Just search World Review on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. You mentioned Ukraine and nation building. I don't think we can really talk about that without um, bringing up Zelensky and the stunning display he's put on in the last few days. Clearly, Putin underestimated him. I think now it's quite clear that a lot of the Western nations also under underestimated his strength. What do you make of the position he is in now and how how Putin might try to handle it? You, you mentioned death lists before. Do you think that there would be some idea that Putin would not want to see Zelensky killed or targeted because it would turn him into a martyr and then he would end up being one of the people who were arrested and tried? Yeah, I mean, Zelensky's, I mean, it sounds almost tasteless to put it in these terms, but had a very good war. Absolutely. A lot of people felt that he didn't ultimately have the the backbone that the job required. And I think he has conclusively and convincingly demonstrated otherwise. Um, it's It's been a very powerful, again, if I say performance, I don't mean to say that he's um, not actually being himself. But on the other hand, any national leader, especially in such a situation, is also a public character. And, you know, even things like his uh, eminently memeable line about, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition, when he was offered uh, to be evacuated. I mean, that absolutely, you know, these are, these are the kind of things which on the one level they seem trivial, but on the other hand, you know, whole perceptions of conflicts, leaders and governments can often tilt on, you know, a, a single line or, or, or a single image. And, this, you know, the sight of him still out there in the streets of Kiev as it's under bombardment, demonstrating that he's still there and that the Ukrainian state still stands. I mean, again, extraordinarily powerful. Now, again, look, the, the, the rational thing absolutely would not be to let him become a martyr. One might suggest that the rational thing would not be to, I don't know, poison your main opposition candidate or indeed invade a country the size of France. So I, I think, we, again, we, you know, we, we have to have a certain analytic humility and understand that you know, things might be different. Certainly, I mean, the, the talk is from Ukraine that absolutely you, that Zelensky and his family are at the sort of top of a, of a death list. My suspicion, again, maybe it's just uh, too much more of a hope, is that actually the, the Russians would much rather arrest him and have a sense that uh, maybe one day they can sort of put him on trial for his betrayal of the Ukrainian nation to the American hegemon or whatever sort of trumped up nonsense they they, they, they come up with. But I, you know, I think we, we have to appreciate that while Zelensky has been extraordinarily important as a rallying figure, whatever happens to Zelensky, that doesn't go away. I mean, you know, whether he's a martyr because he's been killed, whether he's still in effect a martyr because he's a prisoner, and again, I think it's worth say, saying that he's demonstrated himself to be sufficiently strong-willed that it's not like if he was arrested that he would kind of flip after a certain amount of sleep deprivation and the like 
and be willing to sort of sign some confession like a Stalinist show trial. So I think in either way, he would remain an extraordinarily powerful symbol of Ukrainian nationhood. And also, I mean, what if something happened to him, in the grand scheme of things, it's wrong that one individual should count more than others. But realistically, Western governments would clearly have to act in a particular way if he were either killed or um, detained. You know, that again, I think it's the kind of thing which, which will probably lead to some new variety of sanctions or the like being imposed. Because if, if we're blunt, I'm always reminded of the fact that when um, a, a British artilleryman had Napoleon in his sights at Waterloo and was looking for the permission to fire, and the Duke of Wellington said that it's not the job of generals to make war on other generals. The implication is it's just for the ordinary soldiers to kill each other. Well, likewise, I think national leaders and politicians do have a sense that one of their own does have a particular special status and needs to be protected. While NATO members have said that they they absolutely will not get involved in the sense of, you know, actually fighting the war, sending sending their own boots on the ground in Ukraine. What are the possibilities of regional spillover? Ukraine borders several NATO member states. Fighting could very well easily get quite quite chaotic. What what are the chances that this could basically tip over outside of Ukraine? Limited but not impossible, I think, is the honest answer. I mean, clearly the impact of the war already is, as we see so many sort of refugees streaming into neighbouring countries. At the moment, as you say, NATO is very clear that it's not going to get directly involved. And that also affects, I mean, we, we have periodic calls for a no-fly zone to be imposed over Ukraine to deny Russia its use of air power. I think what a lot of the people advocating that don't quite realise is that a no-fly zone is not a magical spell that somehow grounds aircraft. It means that you are willing to send your aircraft in to shoot down the others. And if that happens, we are at war. Because basically it will mean precisely that NATO aircraft are trying to shoot down Russian ones and Russian ones will be trying to shoot down NATO ones and both of them will in due course succeed. So that's off the table. But on the other hand, it is clear that not only is the West at the moment, you know, very much accelerating the amount of military aid and materiel it sends to Ukraine, some of which is still being flown in, but essentially it's coming over by, by land. Now, if, let's say, the Russians do ramp up their war and manage to take all or large chunks of Ukraine, and they find themselves, as is pretty much guaranteed, in a long-term open-ended counterinsurgency campaign against Ukrainians who are fighting back, Ukrainian partisans. I mean, how depressing that uh, Putin starts with the rhetoric of the Great Patriotic War and then kind of emulates in some ways what happened in 1941. Um, But in that case... The intention at the moment is still that the West will provide support and assistance and supplies to these rebels and guerrillas. Now, that's going to mean that there's going to be you know, supply caravans of some sort or another crossing the, the border between Russian and non-Russian held areas. And that's what begins to bring up the possibility of things reaching a kind of slight incremental escalation. I mean, my concern is this. As we saw I mean, in 2014, there was a large explosion in the Czech little village of Vrbitica, where there was a private ammunition dump, because at that time, a certain amount of the stocks there were being sold by a Bulgarian arms dealer to Ukraine. And the Russians sent in um, operatives from, from GRU, military intelligence, to blow it up. 
Now, if they're willing to do that in 2014, I have no belief that there will be any more restrained in 2022, quite the opposite. So what we would probably see is, a, at the very least, a covert Russian operation to try and interdict these, these supply lines, to blow up sort of depots of stocks and such like, which is inevitably going to mean that there will be casualties, there will be Russian operatives arrested and such like, and that potentially creates its own escalatory cycle. If we do have, for example, no-fly zone, I imagine the Russians would target the airfields from which NATO aircraft uh, were taking off to conduct it, things like that. So it's not that I actually think there is any appetite in the slightest for a conflict with Ukraine in Moscow. And I certainly don't actually believe those people who are already saying, and this is why we need to look at the, you know, Baltic security and so forth. To a large extent, this large shift of, of NATO forces to the, the border of the, the NATO area is about signaling resolve and reassuring countries. It's not actually as if I think there's a serious belief that there's going to be some kind of Russian incursion there. It's more just a little bit by little bit potential for escalation that we could see you know, if this becomes a long-term source of instability. So I think that's, that's the concern. So it's there. But again, I think we need to note the degree to which Russia has been trying to keep this to be a Ukraine rather than a Russia versus the West problem. So maybe on a more of a potentially optimistic note. I'm all in favour of that. <laughs> At this moment, what are the potential off-ramps for, for Putin and performance lens? Is there any possibility of a resolution that doesn't involve an enormous loss of life? I would love to think so. Unfortunately, I'm a bear of too small brain at the moment to really see how we can have an off-ramp, except on the other end of continued loss of life. I can't help but feel that in some ways the Russians have... Well, no, I, it's unfair when I say the Russians. I think this is one of the key problems. Which is not about, this is not about ordinary Russians. Russians are clearly not enthusiastic for the war. But Putin and the Kremlin, I think, will need to feel that precisely they are losing before they are willing to contemplate any particular change in policy. And that means that, yeah, for the moment, that you know, we, we, we have to just simply rely on the Ukrainians to give them more bloody noses. Because, look, I mean, there are some people who are saying, well, now Ukraine has shown that it doesn't need to join NATO because it can defend itself. Therefore, they can say that they are withdrawing their, their aspiration. Well, apart from the fact that actually it's written into their constitution, I think NATO membership has become all the more important now as, as much as anything else, a kind of totemic goal that Moscow wanted to deny them and therefore by God, they're going to make damn sure that they retain it. And also, look, I mean, just because they won this war, I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that, that they would also win the next one. You know, if, if you're not part of NATO, there is going to be a fear in Ukraine that at the best they can just push them, push the Russians back this time. So I think, you know, or it, it's hard to see how the Ukrainians can really make any kind of a deal in this situation. I mean, this has always been you know, one of the issues that some, I mean, Zelensky and Poroshenko before him, they had options that would perhaps, perhaps have satisfied Putin. But apart from the fact that those options would clearly have been at the expense of Ukrainian sovereignty and statehood, they also would have been politically suicidal 
for any Ukrainian leader to to adopt. I mean, you know, they always have to worry about the, the nationalist flank and, and how it's going to be projected. So, I, you know, at the moment, I mean, I can't think, I can't see how the Ukrainians, again, unless they suffer a vastly sort of worse war than they at the moment are, which is possible, or unless likewise the, the, the Russians, again, suffer a lot more losses such that actually the prospect of victory seems either impossible or more likely pyrrhic because the costs are too great. I can't see any kind of common ground at the moment. So, I mean, I, I usually try and find the, the most optimistic sort of note one can, one can find in any situation. But on that, and in the, the shortish term, I see no off-ramps. I think, to be perfectly honest, Putin has dynamited them all. Mark Galliotti, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, Sorry, we didn't get to end on an optimistic note after all, but thank you for your time. That's all the time we have for today. Join us on Thursday for our discussion episode. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please like, subscribe, leave a review. Our producer has been Mae Robson. Thank you for listening and until next time. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Trust in politics is broken, so can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.